0: You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed.
1: Five, four, three, two, one, two,
2: ignition.
0: Major Garrett, yes, CBS. Yes, hi.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett from the nation's capital. Major Fantastic. It's the takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington correspondent. Major, that's nonsense. Major Garrett. And you should know better.
1: Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this amazing program known as The Takeout. For those of you in our radio audience, 60 stations strong, thanks for finding us. Thanks for being with us. Early Adapters, podcast land, thank you for being with us from day one. And on CBSN, always great to see you. We're on the road again. I love to do that. We're in Cambridge, Massachusetts, very close to Boston. Our special guest this week is a gentleman named Arthur Brooks. Now, if you're like me, you kind of play word associations with names, so I think Arthur Brooks, Arthur C. Clark, no. James Brooks, no. Albert Brooks, no. It's Arthur Brooks. Hmm. And the reason he's on our show is, well, we... least famous Brooks. <laughs> <the> least <laughs> 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 but you're rising, though. You're, you're giving them all a good run. Uh, the reason we're here is we just drove down from New Hampshire, where we covered the New Hampshire primary, and I saw Arthur on television the other day because he was the, if you will, warm-up act... At the National Prayer Breakfast, that wasn't his exact title, but he it's called the key- that role. it was called the keynote. But it was the, the Game- warm yes, because the guy who came after me was and the guy who came after him is a voice you will no doubt recognize—the 45th President of the United States, Donald Trump. So, without further ado, I'm just going to play Arthur Brooks at the Prayer Breakfast, talking about something he has spent a lot of time thinking and writing about.
0: Eye rolling, sarcasm, derision, dismissal, my friends. Contempt kills marriages. Contempt kills relationships. Contempt kills love. And contempt is ripping our country apart.
1: So I want to start there, Arthur. Um, Most people think, well, just differences is ripping us apart or politics or
0: partisanship. It's deeper and it's a more important word, this contempt. Yeah, that's right. So contempt is the mixture of anger and disgust it's when you believe that somebody's utterly worthless for what they think or what they say and what you find is that couples that are on their way to divorce court virtually always they they, they have this thing it's what psychologists call motive attribution asymmetry which is a famous or for sort of a fancy thing that academics do which is take a simple concept right. and put words around it and then get tenure <laughs> stack words yeah. and acronyms yeah. around it that's right so motive attribution asymmetry is the belief that i'm motivated by love but you're motivated by hatred mm. and and it's obviously an error because in any relationship both parties can't be motivated by love and hatred, simultaneously. So what happens in, in, in marriages is that, that the, the spouses believe that they're motivated by love, the other side is motivated by hatred, and that spawns contempt. Anger, which is normal, anger and divorce are uncorrelated, you know, thank right. God, that's how I stayed married 28 years, and, <laughs> yes. uh, and, and you mix it with disgust which comes because you say think the other person hates you, Mm -hmm. that contempt is the conviction of the worthlessness of another person. You treat somebody that way, you're cooked. And to
1: to carry that out, um, I've often observed a couple of times on the show, but many times in my private life, that the opposite of love isn't hate, it's indifference. Mm -hmm. And indifference is a borderline of this concept, either because if I don't consider you morally valuable, I'm not really interested in what you think or do. You're indifferent to someone that you consider to be worthless. Consider to be worthless. And also to carry out the marriage... Metaphor, and I have some experience in this. Uh, sometimes couples who are in really bad shape and are heading for a divorce speak in absolutes. Hmm. You
0: always do this, right. you never do that. Yeah, for sure. Now, that's contempt usually uses these moral judgments, these moral absolutes, these sort of Manichaean black and white terminology. And that's how you justify the fact that the other person is worthless. Now, one of the things that you see, you had that clip where I talk about eye rolling and derision and sarcasm. That's how you express it. But there's an interesting thing. I mean, the, the, the limbic system of the human brain, which is to say the deep brain, the lizard brain, not your prefrontal cortex where you make your decisions, it's stimulated by all kinds of subtle cues. And so when somebody rolls their eyes, notwithstanding the fact that y- y- you might or might not think something about it in your prefrontal cortex, your limbic system goes into overdrive because when you're treated with contempt, that's a threat. Mm-hmm. Somebody rolls their eyes, they-, they might not mean anything. They might just, you know, I have teenage kids and they roll their eyes so hard they're going <laughs> to fall backwards. It's almost a chairs. reflex
1: syndrome. But yes. your
0: brain reacts when yep. you see that because when you're treated with contempt as worthless, that's actually a threat. That tears people apart, that tears societies apart, and that's exactly what we're doing in our politics today. And is it useful in this construct to think of America as an elaborate, multi dimensional marriage? (laughs) You know, some people will dispute that, but I actually think that what we have in common are the loves that we have in common, are the bonds that hold this. Fractious multidimensional, multicultural multilingual country together, and always have I mean the people who say america 's not a, a physical nation it 's more of an idea. I love that mm-hmm. i mean that 's incredibly important to me, uh, and the reason is beca- I mean, the reason I love America is not because of its boundaries or not because of its ethnicity or its unique language, but because of the idea of freedom of opportunity, of enterprise, of dignity, of all these things that people actually come here. There's nobody who's coming to America saying, you know, on the boat, "Can't wait to get to America where there's this f- perfect system of, of forced income redistribution or something like that." That's absurd. Right. They want to come here because they want to build their lives. Right. They want and that, you know, that's an idea. And that's critical that we love that that love that we have in common is kind of like how marriages work. True, and I know in my travels around the world when people
1: talk to me or have talked to me about America, they not only talk about that idea, that concept, but they also talk about how that is a motivator for where they live and how they look at the world. They look to America to be this higher standard. Yeah. They will like sort of nudge me and say, you know, we're not there. We're not, we're not as aspirational as you. Yeah. We're not as idealistic
0: as you. It's are not as entrepreneurial. Right, yeah. and yeah. that's yeah, yeah. part
1: of this idea and yeah. that's part of that
0: sense of, well, what do we love here and, and why is it valuable to yeah. us? And the shared love is, are the bonds. The shared loves are the bonds. You know, when you talk to, when two people don't agree on something, the way to get them to start understanding each other as people is to talk about the loves that they have in common, usually their children, mm-hmm. for example. When we forget the loves that we have in common about, what, about our country, why we love our country, then it's easy to rip us apart. It's easy for us to t- turn American against American, as if we were, uh, if we'd never known each other, have nothing in common.
1: So, why did you think it was important to say that? Which you said at the prayer breakfast might not a person think, "Well, that's a prayerful
0: group," and yeah. aren't they already there? <laughs> we're not there in this country, okay. and, and it's an ideal look. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, the theme of my speech was "Love Your Enemies," which comes from the Gospel of Saint Matthew. There we, we go. Oh, we got our. There's our, your soup. It's coming. My soup. Thank There's you. your soup. Beautiful. By the way, we're at at Henrietta's Table in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I'm very happy to be here. The food is great, Henrietta's Table. Everybody loves it. The cafeteria for the Harvard Kennedy School, practically. (laughs) (laughs) A place I'll never be allowed. (laughs) He can get in the way I did, you know? (laughs) A brief digression, how did that happen? Uh, It's a good question. I mean, I tried to get in through the front door at one point as a student. I applied here for graduate school, and it turns out that the Harvard Kennedy School is not looking for graduate students who are 31-year-old. French horn playing college <laughs> dropouts with a distance learning degree. Um, however, did
1: not check a lot of diversity boxes. Well, it, it, a lot of diversity to boxes so but it's not
0: the that. core demographic I of see. this place. So, yeah. <laughs> But after you know a, a career in Washington, D.C. apparently as a professor of practice, I have something to add and I'm grateful to be here.
1: Very good, very good. Um, so continuing the conversation about the prayer breakfast because yeah. right after you spoke, mm. President Trump spoke.
0: I'm working very hard for you, I will tell you. And sometimes you don't make it easy, and I certainly don't make it easy on you. And I will continue that tradition, if I might, this morning. And Arthur, I don't know if I agree with you, but I don't know if Arthur's going to like what I'm going to say. The subject of my speech was Love Your Enemies from Matthew 5:44, where he said, you have been taught to love your friends and hate your enemies, but I give you a new commandment, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Um and you know it's it's standard stuff, but it's incredibly um, controversial when you think about it, and difficult, and subversive, and counterintuitive, and right. it changed the world starting 2,000 years ago, and mm-hmm. it continues to be difficult and change the world still today. And so, a lot of commentators pointed out that when the president said, I disagree with you, actually it wasn't me, right. technically he was disagreeing with, it was um, Jesus. Um, <laughs> right, and you were not the stand-in. I was, it was, I was simply the, the, the vehicle, right. uh, suffice it to say. That I, was, I was kind of reading the Bible up there, yes. but but, you know, it's one of the things that really amazes me about that. It's not that Donald Trump repudiated what I had to say. It was actually really nice to me. It's that the president of the United States, the most powerful man in the world, and I disagreed on national television. Right. And nothing happened to me. No. Nothing happened to me. I went home. Nobody gave me a hard time. I still have my job at Harvard as right. far as I know. It's an inc- God bless America. I have to say, it's great. Isn't it great? This is the end of segment one. Stay with us for segment two.
1: We're at Henry at his table in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Arthur Brooks is our special guest back for segment two in just a
2: moment. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move, From CBS News, this is The Takeout
1: with Major Garrett. Love having the show on the road. Cambridge, Massachusetts, of close very near to Boston. We're at nearby Harvard University. Arthur Brooks is our special guest. We're at Henrietta's Table. I'm devouring my chopped salad. Very good. Lots of onions, mm. avocado, all really good. None of those pesky hard-boiled eggs, which is a blessing for me. Um... I want to play another part of the president's reaction, not just to the political climate of the moment, but in part to what Arthur Brooks said at the National Prayer Breakfast. Uh, that's number six, Arden, if you please.
0: I don't like people who use their faith as justification for doing what they know is wrong.
2: Nor do I like people who say, I pray for you when they know that that's not So, so many people have been hurt,
0: and we can't let that go on.
1: So, I was wondering what you thought in that particular moment, because it seemed to be not only a a kind of a rejoinder, but almost a direct rejoinder to what you had said moments earlier. Because in this soundbite we just played, the president So, bleakly referring to Mitt Romney, the one and only Republican senator who, on one count in the impeachment process, voted to convict. And then, speaking of the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, who, with some frequency, says she prays for the president. Right. And doubting their either convictions or moral grounding so directly is actually an act of contempt, is it not? Or borderline?
0: Well, it is... um It's what? It's what? we call ad hominem, which is to assume the motives of other people, to be sure. And uh, it's a perilous thing to do. Now, I understand, you know, what the president is saying is using your faith as a justification for doing something that you know is wrong. I mean, that's, it bothers everybody when they do that. And that's, you know, the president is absolutely within his rights to 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 point that out. Um, you have to ask whether not the prayer breakfast is the best place to do it. But, you know, I mean, it's uh, Trump is successful uh, for a reason. He is uh, he, certainly he transgresses lots of boundaries. Right, exactly,
1: yeah. it's the last place you would expect it. Therefore, it is purely
0: Trumpian that it would be there. And it's it's it is it is his view. I mean, he he says what he thinks. Uh, there's nothing that's being hidden. There's nothing that we don't know. And um, you know, you could say that's valuable on his face too, whether we agree with him or not.
1: I can't tell you <clears throat> how many Trump supporters have told me they value that almost
0: above anything else. That's why he won. I mean, if you look at the data from the 2016 election, people say, you know, he did this. He won because he bashes immigrants. He won because of you know, dog whistles or whatever. The reason he won, according to the public opinion data, is very clear. It's because people, the number one thing they liked about him is that they thought he tells it like it is. He says what he thinks, and it's time that somebody says what they think. Now, that might not appeal to a lot of our listeners or even to me, but... It appealed to enough people, and they were sick of the doublespeak. Exactly. We have a sizable uh, pro-Trump audience for this
1: show, and um, they appreciate the fact that we take members of the administration, points of view of the administration, seriously. We have many cabinet officials on this program, more than any other program that's not on Fox,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: where I used to work. So we take that dialogue seriously. Um, And this will probably come as no surprise to you, because it's related to what you just said. When Arden and I traveled the country during the campaign, more than 75 Trump rallies, we talked to Trump supporters at almost every rally. Frequently, there would be some variation of this expression. He says what needs to be said. Mm. And I would say about what? And they would say everything. <laughs> it's all inclusive and it's direct and it's something that they believe needed to be said that we've been waiting for someone to say. Yeah. And that he said it was all that needed to be that, that that sort of sold sold yeah. right then and there.
0: No filter. I mean, that's why people say that. That people, you know, psychologists will often say that tr- Trump is sort of the 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 Freudian id of people. You know, he says the things that they think, but they can't say, or they're afraid to say, or they're not quite sure it's good to say.
1: They have felt constrained to say. <laughs> and even he says though they it. thought it.
0: He says it. You know, and again, I mean, people will say, well, you shouldn't say everything, <laughs> for right. example. But we have to understand that there's a lot of frustration that people think that. And I, you know, I, lot, I know a lot and love a lot of Trump supporters as well, and, and I understand um, why, they, why they point that out. You start your book with a
1: very famous quote that I want to read, at least part of. Not only is it lyrically written, as so many things Abraham Lincoln wrote were, it's important. We must not be enemies. Though passion may have strained, it must not break our bonds of affection. This goes back to where we started our conversation, this idea that we are an affectionate country toward the ideals of this country. And we used to, I believe, I believe, and I think you do too, we used to share and think about and sort of warm our hands over the fires of those affections more than we do now. Or we've sort of misplaced that idea that we have this joint and mutual affection. Right. And we have sort of gotten to the point where it's easy not to
0: believe the best or even believe the most neutral interpretation, but to believe the worst. Yeah. And that's exactly what was going on when Abraham Lincoln wrote those beautiful words. It's worth pointing out that Abraham Lincoln was not repairing the nation at that point. He was trying to hold it together. That was from his first inaugural. We know what happened after that. There's a civil war. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not that pretty words don't get it done. Um, Those were aspirational words. And and in, in point of fact, he was the president who could help knit the country back together after the civil war. But A lot of bad things happened before that. This country is not perfect. Um, This is a country where there's a lot of bitterness and acrimony and and, and misunderstanding. And it goes in cycles um, when people become frustrated with the status quo. Um, I hope the reason I spoke at the prayer breakfast, what I've dedicated my career to doing, is aspirational leadership. Mm -hmm. To lift people up and bring them together. To help people remember, look, this is the greatest country in the world. We are so incredibly lucky to live in this country. And to focus on the bad to be led to focus on the bad by kind of the outrage industrial complex mm-hmm. and politics and media. It's a, it's, it's very irresponsible. I mean, it's a, it's like, we're all a bunch of teenagers. who's like <laughs> dad. I can't believe I can only, you know, we're all, I can't believe we're only going to Utah skiing right. this year. How can exactly. we're not going to Colorado? Right. Working out our momentary frustrations in the moment. A little um, bit. Yeah. And I realize that there is suffering and I don't want to make light of that no. or, or to, 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 to denigrate the real suffering of other people. But, it's more important to realize what we have in common, the loves that we have in common. So I want to tee this conversation up because it's an important part
1: of the book, Love Your Enemies. It's something, though I live in Washington, though I'm part of the media elite, when it happened, I missed it. Hmm. What's that? Hank Newsom and Tommy Hodges. Hmm. I want you to give my audience a little bit of introduction to who Hank Newsom and Tommy Hodges are. We'll play a little bit of what they did on the mall, the National Mall in Washington in 2017. And then we'll have a broader conversation about the potential implications
0: of that on the other side of the break. So set it up a little bit. So Hawk Newsom, actually, not Hank. It's Hawk Newsome. Yeah, I couldn't Hawk read Newsom. my own writing. Yeah, I couldn't no, read I my own writing. But it, it, uh, n- most people aren't named Hawk. It's a more unusual name for sure. Hawk Newsom is the head of Black Lives Matter of Greater New York. Tommy uh, Tommy Gunn is actually how he goes. Uh, sort of his his activist name is was the head of um, a Trump rally organization that was putting on a, an, a, a, a big rally, including bikers for Trump, on the Mall in right. Washington D.C. The mother of all rallies, the mother of all rallies in September of 2017, and you know there, it's a you know, pretty big rally, and it was pretty boisterous, and and Black Lives Matter Greater New York showed up to protest the rally, and that was going to be trouble. Mm-hmm. So Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter Radio New York shows up with with Hawk Newsom, who's six foot six, and he's decked out in Black Lives Matter gear. And he comes in with his fist raised in the air with the people who are with him that had just gotten off the bus. They had come from the Charlottesville rally at this point. You know, which is, and they're super fired up. Mm-hmm. Everybody's really angry. Oh, right? And it's and, an edgy situation. Oh man, it looks like it's it's like going to come to blows or worse. Which is, so people do what they always do in public today. When there's a terrible situation, uh, they get out their cameras and film it. And so we have from a hundred different angles what happened next. And I think you've got footage of that, right? We do. So what we are going to do is
1: something you're not used to. And we're going to give you two minutes of our platform to put your message out. Now, whether they disagree or agree with your message is irrelevant. It's the fact that you have the right to have the message.
2: I am an American. And the beauty of America is that when you see
0: something broke in your country, you can mobilize to fix it. Uh, yeah. So you ask why there's a Black Lives Matter, because you can watch a black man die and be choked to death on television and nothing happened.
2: We need to address that.
1: So that dialogue went on a little bit longer. Right. We're going to come on the other side of this break to talk about the after effects on both of those individuals and what you learned from it. I'm Major Garrett. We're with Arthur Brooks. Stay with us for segment three of The Takeout.
0: CBS News,
2: this is The Takeout
1: with Major Garrett. Welcome back. We're going to pick up the conversation right where we left off. We heard Hawk Newsome. We heard Tommy Gunn, although otherwise known as Tommy Hodges. That sequence you've heard was Tommy saying, we're bringing you to the stage. We're going to give you two minutes. You have a voice. Here's your, what's your message? Take it from there, Arthur.
0: So Hawk Newsome gets up on stage and he starts by unifying the crowd. He says, I'm an American. Right. And I love this country. And he said, I'm a Christian. And he said all this stuff that the, that the audience was cheering for him. And then he said some hard things. He said, I'm going to explain to you why, black li- why the Black Lives Matter movement exists effectively. He said, it's not because we think anybody else's life doesn't matter. But you look around and you see a black man die in the street at the hands of the police. And nothing happens. And you have to conclude that black lives matter less in this country and so we need a movement that says black lives matter. And it was like light bulbs going off for a lot of people. I mean not everybody agrees with his position or anything that he says, but they, they understood him for the his his point was unify and educate. And he also said we're not anti-cop. There was some booze,
1: some skepticism he said we're anti bad cop. Right. And they're like, huh and you could see and there's lots of ways to watch this, go on YouTube, lots of different angles there are ripples through the crowd. It's not as if he wins them all over, but he wins the majority of them over yeah. for sure.
0: And they were listening, and they didn't hate him, right. and they didn't want to hurt him. And he finally said, "Okay, I'm out of here." And he, <laughs> he says, by the way, his, his finger was sliced open because he had he had just opened a box of, uh, a box of like banners or something, and 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 with an exacto knife, and his his. And bleeding profusely and some lady in the crowd gives him a you know cloth to wrap up his finger right. and he comes off the stage and some guy says, will you take a picture with my kid? You know, a little blonde kid and, and they're congratulating him and it's I disagree with you, but I just really, I'm really I'm so happy to hear you. And you know, this is the point. If you're basically talking to people with whom you disagree and you want to start with your shared loves and then you want to, them to hear your point of view and you understand theirs you're going to be okay. And that's exactly what we're not doing in this country. We have a climate of fear You know, love and fear are opposites. I mean, you talked about love and indifference being opposites, but it's really love and fear are opposites. And when we govern and lead with fear, we're going to set people against each other as opposed to trying to bring you you can disagree very vigorously. I mean, my wife and I disagree on things all the time Mm -hmm. and we love each other. And, and, and that's that's actually because of our shared loves. Right, exactly. And this is really important. And so Hawk Newsom gave us a master class in this country on how to say something that's hard and have people with you because you understood them and you, you wrapped it in our shared loves.
1: And he was changed by this experience. Yeah. Uh, you have a conversation with him after this about his whole approach to not just advocacy, but sort of. Dealing with his issue and how to relate it to people.
2: Yeah. Leading
0: with love, he says, if I remember the quote yeah. correctly from the book. That's right. So I had him actually come and we, we sat down together and, and I interviewed him for the book and for a call in the New York Times. And <clears throat> he said that it really, he's never been the same. He was attacked by his own side from all over the country for selling out to the enemy. You know, for for, for that? Know, yeah, yeah, for that, for getting on stage and and being understanding and and talking about shared loves as opposed to being an implacable hostile foe. This is what always happens. Look after in the in the in the in the aftermath of the prayer breakfast. You know, I got a lot of criticism. I mean, the problem is when you're a professor, um, it's easy to get your email. I mean, you can't get Major Garrett's email, but you can get Arthur Brooks's email in like ten seconds. And so people were reaching out and just punching me over and over and over again for not treating Trump with overt contempt. You know, people who dislike Donald right. Trump a lot were saying, you should show him the hatred he's showing for the country, and if you don't, you fail. Well, that's exactly what Hawk Newsom got from a lot of people on his own side who hated him because he didn't hate enough. That's how the outrage industrial wow. complex works in this country. That's
1: a mind-bending construct. A and problem. speaking of that, we had a guest on our show a couple, three weeks ago, Dan Crenshaw. Yeah. Member of Congress. He's a freshman Republican from Texas in the Houston area. and Kennedy School graduate. And he talked about the now somewhat famous Saturday Night Live joke made at his expense. Shows him with an eye patch, yeah. says, uh, implies that he's a porn star. Oh, and he got wounded in a war or something, right? And then we had a long conversation about how that situation was de-escalated. And he was a significant player in the de-escalation. Yeah. And he said, on this very program, I had a choice about the outrage machine or trying to, if not turn it off, not even mobilize it. Right. And he said, SNL contacted me and said they wanted to apologize. And I had people whispering, to don't do that. Turn up the outrage machine. You can raise money. You can raise your profile. He said, but if I did that, if I don't let them apologize, then there's no place for them to go. Mm-hmm. They have to double down. Mm. They have to be just as bad as they were with the first joke. There's no other room for them to maneuver. Right. I had to give them room to maneuver. Right. That also seems to me to factor into the calculus we must think about.
0: Yeah, for sure. Do you
1: give people who have either hurt you or offended you or done something you would disagree
0: with? Is there any room other than to just amp it up? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a crazy strategy that people are using to actually maintain their money and power and fame or cliques or supporters or something is to make sure that nobody has any space to show any grace. And and furthermore, I think that there's a, there's a way that we can actually instigate this, even if Saturday Night Live didn't want to apologize, which is to forgive them, even in the lack of their apology. That's, that's how grace is supposed to work. Mm-hmm. You know, we're supposed to forgive each other. Look, if, if, if we have our, our eye on the ball here... It's a tough world out there. In the United States, we need to We need to band together. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not just us versus them. On the contrary, I mean, we all are, and I believe we're all daughters and sons of God. <laughs> we all are part of the human race. But at least in the United States, we have these shared, shared loves, which are a source of our strength. And when we're fighting each other like this and not forgiving each other, it's just craziness. It's just weakening us in such a big way. So I admired Dan Crenshaw for that. And I talked to him about it a little bit later. And it was, by the way, he's not... He's no milk toast. No. He's like on fire conservative, <laughs> yes. Texas, pro Trump. Yes. I mean, down the line. No,
1: oh. He is no shrinking violet at all. But yeah. in that matter, but he, he chose d- a different path. Totally.
0: And totally. And that just shows us, look, you can disagree like crazy. That's the competition of ideas. That's what makes truly America great is the disagreements that we have. But we have to have That's those disagreements. That's how we forged
1: the best compromises yeah. in our country by arguing over them strenuously. Yeah, yeah,
0: and you don't even we don't even ever have to Compromise. We can we can disagree forever and still love each other. Mm-hmm. You
1: talk in the book about doing something that some in my audience might find somewhat alarming as a part of this effort. Even if you can't
0: love your enemies, fake it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I mean, I really? believe it or not, I got this. I got this uh, advice from the Dalai Lama because <laughs> I've written with him with a little with him a little bit, and we've had the, an ongoing collaboration. He's a great friend and teacher and, and i asked him you know, your, your holiness when somebody treats me with hatred and i don't feel love what should i do and he said fake it and it's very good <laughs> advice because you know the truth is when you act a particular way you will start feeling it i mean attitude tends to follow action not just vice versa and be pretend to be the person you want to be and you will become that person it's really really solid advice um, for all of us, have you tried it? Yeah, I really have. I have to say that it's it's really changed my life. No kidding. Yeah, I mean, and, and I, I teach a class at the Harvard Business School on happiness, and one of this one of really? the things. Yeah, every class in happiness this is a great class. This How is many really credits fun? for that class? One and a half. One and a half? One and a half credits. you only get
1: one and a half credits for happiness. Come it's only on. seven weeks,
0: but uh, I'm in the middle of seven it right weeks now. Of happiness. How oh, it's great. the students are so great and they're so interesting and they're so engaged. I love the class and. uh and one of the things I talk about is an example of this. There's a there are two little muscles in the corners of your eyes called the orbicularis oculi muscles, and when you move those muscles, that's first reference on the show. I know. It's the first time. You really, it's first time it's come up. It's weird. And it turns out that when you, when you exert the orbicularis oculi muscles, it, it signals to your brain that you're happy. Why? Because it's the only smile that, the hum- that humans make that's associated with their happiness is not with the mouth. It's with these tiny little muscles. So when you see an old person with pronounced crow's feet. That person has been smiling a happiness smile their whole life. That's a good – it's like nobody should ever get Botox because right. it makes it you – won't, you won't look like a happy person. And so it's really, it's interesting thing. So when you simulate that by biting down on a pencil sideways, it will scrunch up the corners of your eyes and you will get happier. Here's my point. (laughs) Fake it, you'll feel it. There's a physical hack that everybody listening to us can do. If you bite down on a pencil really hard Mm -hmm. with your back molars and look in the mirror, you'll see that you're scrunching up the corners of your eyes. You do that for a minute, you'll be happier for an hour possibly the most valuable advice ever dispensed on this program and when
1: i say do this at home ladies and gentlemen i mean do this at home go get the pencil go get to the mirror and make yourself happy i'm major garrett segment for the takeout coming up right after this
2: CBS News. This is The Takeout with Major
1: Garrett. Welcome back. Love having the show on the road. I really, really do. Bringing the show as many places in the country as possible. It's a big treat. The show for me is a treat, as everyone knows. We're in uh, near Boston. Middle America, Cambridge, Mass. Cambridge, Mass, exactly. Near Harvard University. Very flat, atonal. I'm not trying to do that whole Boston thing. I can't. Won't try it. Uh, Arthur Brooks is our very special guest. We've talked a lot about the National Prayer Breakfast. We've talked about his book, Love Your Enemies, this idea of contempt. Um, What would you, if you were to try to summarize for my audience um, your ideological journey or your partisan journey of the last few years, what would you say? Um...
0: Over the last few years, that's a good question. I mean, I started out, I come from a, a family of artists and academics in Seattle, Washington. So, you know, guess what their politics are, mm. right? I mean, it, 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 it's an answer, it's a question that answers itself practically, it right? And I didn't really have political views because I was a classical musician. All I wanted to do was play the horn. I mean, I was a French horn player, and I, I didn't have, you know, I guess I had politics by proxy. I mean, I, know, I literally knew no one who had voted for Ronald Reagan. Mm-hmm. Nobody in my neighborhood, nobody in my family. I think my uncle voted for him, but okay. you know, we, were su- we suspected that. <laughs> right. That, that would <laughs> fall into the, there's always one in the family yeah, category. Kind of, sort yeah, of yeah. Thing, That's right. right. And then over the course of my 20s, I started studying economics and, and became very interested in, in how capitalism actually wipes out poverty. It was a key thing. I had been traveling a lot as a, as a classical musician. i would seen, gone to a lot of developing countries and seen a lot of poverty and then had learned that poverty was just absolutely in worldwide retreat. And I wanted to figure out why. So I, I started thinking economics to figure that out. And I wound up getting a bachelor's degree in economics and becoming pretty enthusiastic about this. And around this time, you know, I'm back in Seattle you know, visiting my mom and we it's Christmas time. We were cooking dinner or something and I'm in there. And my mom always had a lot to say. And she was being real silent. It was weird. Mm. And it was making me nervous. And I was right. like, Mom, you know, what's something on your mind?
1: Something eating you. Something yeah.
0: bothering you. And she says, Yeah, you know, I got to be honest. Your dad and I are very worried about you. I'm like, Uh oh. <laughs> she says, I need to ask you a question and I want a completely honest answer. I said, Fine. She says, Have you been voting for Republicans? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. And, God. but it was, it, and it. <laughs> I guess I we, had we been, suspect. I had to come clean I know, I know We found a voting ballot right, under exactly, your mattress exactly. You know, whatever And <laughs> 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 a brochure for the Republican Party Yeah, I saw a,
1: nat- a rumpled national
0: review under your <laughs> I know. bed sheets We're very concerned about <laughs> that It was like taking that. me to the priest <laughs> um, It's, and it, it, I was, uh, I guess I was experimenting with conservative politics And I don't would consider myself to be sort of center right in my views But mm-hmm. I'm eclectic in my views as well I'm very interested in public policy and, and and it's important that, for, as far as I'm concerned, all policy should be dedicated toward people at the periphery of society. That's the first preference, as far as I'm. I'm a Catholic too, mm-hmm. so you can tell. You know, this is how this is kind of how Social I'm wired. Justice streak. Yeah. Yeah, and and the the point of capitalism is to lift people up and give them opportunity. Those who don't have it, I don't. I don't really care what rich people's tax rates are. I mean, it's good that they're not so high that they that they you know. And ruin initiative right? and they might not be fair but I really care a lot about actually making it impossible for people to find their own dignity in an opportunity society which is the only reason that my ancestors came to this country and the ancestors of most of the people listening to us came to this country and so if that makes me a conservative so be it but I think that basically I just have really strong mainstream American views and I bet 99% of the people listening to us today are saying yeah I, I think that too how does Trump factor into all that Trump is an interesting phenomenon. There's a lot of studies that show <clears throat> that after a financial crisis, particularly in the decade after a financial crisis, I mean, there's data on 800 elections over 120 years in 20 advanced economies. And as a causal matter, the data suggests... That that in the ten years after a financial crisis, the uneven economic growth, where eighty percent of the rewards mm. of the economy go to twenty percent of the population, that leads to tremendous benefits electorally to populist politicians and parties. Uh, generally speaking, a thirty percent bump at the tenth year of a f- after a financial crisis. You know, it's Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders by the numbers. Quite frankly, I mean, and a lot of people listening to us, they love Donald Trump and they consider themselves populist. Fine, but that's actually how it how it's predicted. So I'm not casting aspersions. I'm you know being right. sort of uh, I'm looking diagnostically at this. And so that's how it figures in. You know, I met people in the run-up to the 16 election. I know you did, too, mm-hmm. who said, I want Bernie Sanders to be president of the United States, but if he's not the candidate, I'm voting for Trump. And, Jordan, and vice versa. And they, they got... I mean, Trump, Sanders voters got Trump elected in the three mm-hmm. in the three states. I mean, it's I got to go through this slowly because people I want people to absorb this. Right. And I'm, I'm bringing Coles to Newcastle by telling Major Garrett this, <laughs> but a lot of people don't. In the three states uh, in Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania that elected Donald Trump. The margin in each of those three states of people who voted for Sanders in the primary and crossed over to vote for Trump in the general is greater than Trump's margin. Literally, Bernie Sanders voters are the reason Donald Trump is president of the United States today. That transcends Mm right-left. Has Trump's influence on
1: dialogue or politics Pushed you any farther in a direction than you otherwise were leaning yeah, ideologically, or from a partisan perspective?
0: It, it really hasn't. I mean, my 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 understanding of what American conservatism is at its best is is openness. It's opportunity for all. It's incredibly inclusive. It's it's the spirit of the immigrant. I mean, that's that's really and and the reason is because, <clears throat> I mean. People don't realize that Make America Great Again was a slogan that was invented by Ronald Reagan in September of 1980, the base of the Statue of Liberty, in a speech extolling the virtue of immigrants, for Pete's sake. Things change over time is the bottom line. And, you know, I still... I mean I'm not trying to, you know, resurrect the 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 cult of St. Ronald or something mm. that a lot of American conservatives do but but I have to say that's that's the kind of thinking that I really admire. I mean I admire the frontier, the the boundless spirit, the people who really believe that they can build it and that that we should be free to be able to do it. I understand the frustrations of people who say, "Yeah, but we've been left behind and we need to fix those things." It's only lack of imagination that makes it impossible both to to have a, a, a thriving trade economy, and also to, to train people to be up to the task of the, of, of the economy of the day. I mean, we've, we've failed, but that doesn't mean we have to give up. Indeed.
1: You mentioned a moment ago that there are things that you believe most Americans agree with, and I'm going to read two quotes. I'm not going to tell you who said them or when they said them, but I think you'll be surprised. One, let me begin. Quote. We accept without reservation our obligation to help the aged, disabled, and those unfortunates who, through no fault of their own, must depend on their fellow man. That's quote number one. Quote number two, it's a reference to students needing to do their homework and stop hanging out on street corners. Quote, America says we will give you an opportunity, but you have to earn your success. Okay, you think to yourself, "Well, wait a minute. That except without reservation obligation the age to say that's got to be some big lefty. Hmm. That's FDR, right? Or I don't know. And that second one, that's got to be some kind of uh,
0: aggressive some Republican." Yeah. Absolutely,
1: right? Hard-fisted Republican, uh-huh. really tough-nails conservative. Well, the first was Ronald Reagan. His 1967 inauguration speech becoming governor of
0: California. The second, 2012, Barack Obama. Exactly right. Okay. Exactly right. I was so heartened when I heard Barack Obama say that. And, and that's a famous quote, you know, a lot of, from Ronald Reagan, and, and that could have been from Friedrich Hayek, because he talked about the importance of the welfare state to to bring people up to make sure that people didn't fall too far. Those are... Those are old conservative principles. Um, I think that we've gotten to the point where we've forgotten the fact that we need to to have a a seamless garment between Americans. We need solidarity between rich and poor, people from all different circumstances. Because if we don't, then we're broken down by class. We're broken down by race. We're broken down by creed. It's just not right. And it's an... As they say in baseball, an unforced error. <laughs> an unforced error. That's the voice of Arthur Brooks, our very special guest. For our radio
1: audience, thanks so much for tuning in. For our podcast and CBSN audience, we invite you to please stick around. There's much more to the takeout right after this. For our radio audience, we'll see you next week.
2: From CBS News, this is The Takeout with
1: Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. We're on the road, Cambridge, Massachusetts, very close to Boston, very near Harvard University. Our special guest, Arthur Brooks, just a fantastic conversationalist, brilliant writer. Uh, He's a professor at Harvard. He's done lots of other amazing things with his life. But I want to talk to you about the early thing you did with your life. You made a glancing reference to it during the main show. But I want to talk more about this, Uh, being a French horn player. Yeah. Why French horn?
0: I don't know. I mean, it's, uh, I started out with violin when I was four, piano when I was five, and it was eight. I took up the French horn for whatever reason. And it stuck because I was really good at it. I was better at it than the other kids. And it was, it was I was great. I played the best music. I practiced all the time. I literally, major, I, I thought I was going to become the greatest French horn player in the world. Isn't America a great country yes. where you can have this weird aspiration?
1: So I helped my audience, who many of them might be like me, don't understand the
0: difference. What is a French horn? French horn is a member of the brass section. It's, the, it's, 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 a, it's a very long tube wrapped basically into a circle with a long bell on the end that points out the back. And there, there are five of them in each symphony orchestra. Uh, it's, it has the most mellow sound of all the brass instruments. has a very, very beautiful tone. I also tends to miss a lot of notes for reasons of unfortunate physics. I see. <laughs> No matter how good you play it, you yeah, can miss you notes. Yeah, you always miss a lot of you, notes. You, you I mean, the French notes. horn is known for missing a lot of notes. Yeah.
1: Okay, so I'm a big jazz enthusiast, and yeah. several well-known jazz musicians play a variation of the flugelhorn or the flugelhorn, something like yeah, that.
0: which is a mellow trumpet. It's a, it's a larger bore trumpet. Right. Yeah.
1: And... um But your instrument is specifically part of orchestral music. Is that true? Yeah,
0: it's almost entirely classical. However, there are a few jazz French horn players that have had, you know, so Thelonious Monk always had had a jazz horn player in his band. Um, my teacher One of my teachers a guy named Bobby Roach Who was a very Very well known jazz player And I played for a couple of years On the road With Charlie Bird The jazz guitar player whom no you know kidding. yeah, Who yes. brought samba And jazz uh, Jazz bossa nova To the United States With Stan Getz in With the 50s. Stan Getz Absolutely Yeah And uh, so Charlie Bird And I was part of a, You know um, Tommy Newsom, Remember the guy Who mm-hmm. did the arrangements For the Tonight Show band know, yes. did, did a whole uh, Whole set for us And we toured it On the road For a couple of years And made two albums Together with Concord Jazz So I was in the backup band Of Charlie Bird For two years Now that's that's cool, right? That's living. It was fun. That's I learned living. a lot from him. I learned a lot about life from Charlie Bird.
1: You write in your book, I Love Your Enemies, a little bit about that experience and tyrannical
0: conductors. Yeah, they're evil. Um, I mean, some are geniuses, in which case they're evil geniuses, mm-hmm. but all are evil.
1: And what is that?
0: It's actually not true. It's funny since I left the business and you when know, I got into management, because I ran a think tank for, I was in management and you know I'd, I'd meet conductors like, yeah, boy, they had a hard time. It's like I just didn't understand them. Exactly. there's fractious musicians. But uh, conductors, generally speaking, at least classically, have uh, ruled with an iron fist, with fear, with coercion. Mm-hmm. Which is you know, fear-based leadership is not very fun. No. It can be effective. And you but recommend it's not good. against it? In the I book. totally do. I absolutely do. I mean, fear-based leadership is has a has a short fuse. It doesn't last. It doesn't work for very long, you usually will wind up getting bumped off. Mm-hmm. Fear-based leaders will wind <laughs> up getting... Yeah, one way or the other. You get, if it's, you know, in many Actually countries... or Strung up from a bridge yeah. in many countries, but at least in, in symphony orchestras, you'll wind up fired.
1: Is part of that impulse that artists left to themselves are just naturally undisciplined and have to be
0: disciplined? Yeah, there's something to that. Um, but it's also... In symphony orchestras in particular, it's one of the most unhappy professions in the arts, believe it or not. Mm. So the, the happiest musicians are chamber musicians. You know, string quartets, for example. Right. I played Nebraska Quintet for six years, the first six years of my career. And you know, we were touring. it was on the road 70% of the time. <clears throat> Went to dozens of countries. I saw all 50 states in the back of a van. Nice. Except for Alaska and Hawaii, because you can't drive there very well. <laughs> and, you know, by the time I was Certainly 21... I mean, it was a great life, I have to say. And we were, we were deciding what we were going to play. When you're in an orchestra, you can't even say... You got to go to the bathroom I mean you're Completely controlled It's like kindergarten And you know Somebody else decides On the music And it's basically 99% boredom And 1% terror Which is not a good recipe a For really a happy life a really dreadful ratio It's not great what's your, what's your ratio In your business major? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you're probably 50% boredom, 40% fun, and 10% terror. Is so, that, is that so, right?
1: So I'll speak to this show. 100% fun. Okay? There you go. Oh, the party that's why line. The that's podcast. why I created it. 100% and that's why CBS fun.
0: loves Major Garrett. <laughs> <laughs> this show,
1: 100% fun. That much I know. So we have three threshold questions, Arthur Brooks, that everyone on the show You're our 161st episode, so every single person who's been at the takeout table has answered these questions and our audience loves the answers because already they've learned a ton about you, but they'll learn even more. So, in no particular order, the most or one of the most influential books in your life, uh, all-time favorite movie or one of your favorite movies, and if you're on a long flight or a long drive, what kind of music, artist, or genre are you most Mm. likely
0: to listen to? So, we start with the book, right? Okay. The book that's influenced me... I read, a lot of, uh, I read a lot of spiritual texts, uh, and not just from my own religion as a mm-hmm. Catholic. Um, Zen and the Art of Archery had a huge impact on me. And I read it for the first time when I was 20, and then I read it again when I was 50. And I got a lot more out of it when I was 50 than I when bet. I was 20. It's a great book. It's about Eugene Herigel, who is a, a German professor of Eastern thought, who went to Japan and wanted to study Zen Buddhism in the 20s. And, and he was told he couldn't study Zen Buddhism. He would have to only study... Archery. So he he took archery lessons for seven years to learn Zen Buddhism, and he walks through how he actually did this. Incredibly profound. I understood things for the very first time about Zen Buddhism, but also just about myself. I have to say, that was a very influential book on me. And and, and, and I have to say, I I uh, and did I've you learn things about again again. about
1: about patience, applied patience, discipline, uh, balance?
0: I learned that most of the things that you learn about happiness and about yourself are learned through living as opposed to trying to get them intrinsically trying to get you don't you know it's a nathaniel hawthorne one time said that happiness is like a butterfly if you try to grab it you never will but if you sit quietly it might come and sit on your shoulder yeah. in other words live your life but live your life fully alive and completely aware and in so doing you can learn about what you want to be who you want to be that is the central lesson, but it's also methodically taking you through the steps to, to, to observe your life, to, to be alive and to see your life while you're being alive. It's, it's, it's a great, it's a really great book. Fantastic. Yeah. A movie. So let's go from the sublime to the absurd. Um, we love that journey. My favorite, I gotta say my favorite, it's so, I'm so embarrassed to tell you, but so it's a good thing that nobody's listening to us right now, right? <laughs> um, oops, the whole country. Um, <laughs> I mean the whole country. And we have listeners all over the world, so. So Up in the Air with George Clooney. Yeah. I love that movie. And, and why do I love that movie? It's funny, I've watched it again and again. Why do I love that movie? It's just because it's, well, to begin with, I've, like you, I'm on the plane all the time, mm-hmm. and it's so funny because right. it's so accurate yes. on, on what plane culture is all about, and you know, earning frequent flyer points for the sake of them about all of goodness. those things. Oh, it's so absurd! And how you learn that language, and you learn that mathematics, and you are rigorous no. about both the oh, language yeah. and the mathematics. Absolutely. Like I don't want, I'm not going to take a, <laughs> anybody's G5 a private flight because I won't get points <laughs> on United <laughs> Airlines. I mean, it's just the things, the perverse things that you actually do. So that's, I love that movie up in the. end by the way, George Clooney is a great actor, no doubt. Uh, so this is in your
1: wheelhouse, music.
0: Yeah. So I mean, that—that's. Uh, I listen to all different kinds of music, and I love everything from avant-garde to, to uh, Carnatic music from southern India to. But but classical music is my home base, mm-hmm. and so if I've gotten if I've you know on De- Desert Island Discs, you remember yes, that right. show, of course, yes. It would be it would be the works of Johann Sebastian Bach. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Bach lived from 1685 to 1750, uh, wrote a th- published a thousand pieces of all instrumentations, had 20 kids, which is productive. 20? 20. 20 kids, and was known at the time Not of his 17, death, 20. 20, I mean, 10 lived to adulthood. Many were famous composers in their own right. And Bach's music, it's like these cantatas fell from his pen. I mean, it's just, it's so beautiful and so profound. And he ended every score by writing to the glory of God. This is a guy who said near the end of his life, the aim and final end of all music is nothing less than the glorification of God and the refreshment of the soul. I thought to myself, I want to be able to say that about my work. Mm-hmm. He inspires
1: me every single day. My soul is refreshed from this very conversation. Arthur Brooks, it's been a pleasure. Edgar Garrett, it's great to be with you. What an honor. Thank you so much. We'll see you next week, folks.
2: Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most-watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across
1: politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free
2: on Wondery Plus. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast